0: Good afternoon, and welcome to The Legal Hour, produced by GetLegal.com. I'm Keith Spencer. I'm an attorney at Bailey & Galleon, and I practice family law, and that's what we'll be talking about today. This is a family law question and answer session. We've got three very experienced attorneys here today to field your questions and, and hopefully give you some insight into family law and and all things associated with it, custody, visitation, division of property, that sort of thing. As I said, I'm Keith Spencer. I'm a board-certified family law attorney for Bailey & Gallion. I practice in the Bedford office. I've been practicing family law for approximately 31 years, so not a lot I haven't seen. I'm joined today by two other very distinguished attorneys from Bailey & Gallion.
1: My name is Christine Clary. I practice in our Hewlin office. I'm the managing attorney there. I've been practicing for about eight years.
2: I'm Gene Leposki. I'm the managing attorney over at the Plano office. Um, 27 years been practicing. I'm licensed in Texas, California, Pennsylvania.
0: At Bailey & Galleon, we have 13 offices in the dallas and an office down in Clear Lake in the Houston area. So we've got offices situated around town. Uh, for your convenience. You also get a free uh, initial consultation at Bailey & Gallion. So it doesn't cost you any money to come by and ask a question, alright? We want you to have all the information you need to be able to make a good decision. We also offer a 10% discount on our retainers for active duty and uh, military personnel and veterans as well as public school teachers. So at Bailey & Galleon we offer free consultations, we have convenient offices located all over the Metroplex uh, to try and make life a little bit easier for you. We also have payment plans that try to make uh, litigation and family law matters a bit more affordable. Uh, These kinds of cases are, are expensive and difficult to work with, and so we have some tools to try and make that a little easier for you. Uh, In fact, we even have a Bailey and Guy credit card uh, that can also make that a little bit easier. So today we're going to answer some questions for you. Uh, And these are whatever you you dial in and and send to us, we'll be happy to answer it. But I wanted to start with a question that we get all the time. And that is whether or not I should hire an attorney and what should I look for. These days, uh, it's a really hot question because if you get on the internet, there's do-it-yourself forms. And they can be a little bit problematic. Isn't that right, Christine? Yes,
1: that is correct. They can be problematic. They're very difficult to read. Um, you have, I mean, as you'll see, when if you see them, they have check marks and you're not always sure they use the legal term, and you may not know what those legal terms are. So my advice is that you get an attorney just to help you through the process and uh, advocate for you along the way. There may be things that you don't realize are an issue.
2: Also, besides helping with the forms, I think it also saves you some time some emotional uh, stress a lot of people they have to keep continue to work during the process they don't want to deal with their opposing party or their spouse so let us do the words for you and we can help you out
0: when you see these do it yourself forms one thing to look for is where they came from because <clears throat> With the advent of the internet, we have lots of information available out there, but there's no gatekeeper. Anyone with a keyboard can write up forms themselves, and and there are people out there jotting up forms and selling them, and they may be absolutely wrong for what you do. These people may not be lawyers, or they may be from a very distant jurisdiction that treats family law very differently than what we do. Uh, So you want to be really careful about that. The problem, one of the bigger problems, I think, with do-it-yourself forms is that there are some very hyper-technical areas of family law that if you get it wrong, it's very difficult to come back later and fix it. Retirement accounts come to mind. Uh, if you divide a retirement account, you have to have some, some very specific documents and language employed to accomplish that. And it's really hard to come back later. I know this happens to me every day, Gene, where someone comes in and they finally found out that they have a problem, but it's been a year and a half since they divorced.
2: Right. And uh, there was a couple that came, not a couple, a person who came in with the standard forms and she checked the box that the husband gets to make all the personal decisions regarding the child's education kid was going into sixth grade and pulls him out of school right before a sixth grade class with well, a judge it's pretty clear what the order says he can make all decisions so then of course we had to go to trial and have a big blown trial and we end up reversing that but you could see how easily checking the wrong box gets you in a heap of trouble Absolutely.
1: I think an analogy that I've heard one of the judges that that tells people this quite often um, is that you have a right to take out your own appendix, but usually if you do, you make a bloody mess of it. Same thing with your divorce. You're going to make a bloody mess of it and end up hiring a professional to fix it.
0: (laughs) One question that we get a lot to is uh, mediation is a big thing these days, all right? And, in fact, most cases do settle before final trial for a lot of reasons. One, because people don't want to wait sometimes a year before the court can give them a trial date. They also don't want to go through the the expense of that. And so most courts will encourage the parties to attempt mediation before they go to final trial. But there are some rules about mediation that can fool you. For example, there's a lot of folks out there who say, We'd like to go to mediation before we file for divorce, and won't that make the, the divorce easier? Well, yes and no. I mean, there's some new case law out that shows that if you and your spouse go have mediation, you haven't filed for divorce yet, you go have mediation and you sit down and you decide where the kids are going to live and how they're going to visit and what the child support going to be and how we're going to divide the property, and you settle your case. It's absolutely unenforceable because you haven't filed a divorce petition yet that you can attach that, that mediated settlement to. And some of the folks who are selling this pre-divorce mediation are charging a lot of money for that stuff. I mean, $600 for a half day per side uh, to to mediate. And yeah, you've talked and maybe you've done some good, but it's absolutely unenforceable. And the first time someone gets their feelings hurt, they just withdraw
2: their agreement to the mediation, and the important thing to know is if you go through mediation and enter a mediated settlement agreement after you file for divorce, it's one of the strongest agreements under the state of Texas. The judge, unless if there's a violation of public policy, the judge has to enter it. So when you re- have this agreement and you're drafting up a decree to explain it in more details and make it a lot make it a lot thicker. The other side takes the power away, so when you leave mediation with a signed mediated settlement agreement, you can be really confident that that's going to be your agreement and you don't have any more court hearings where you have to present evidence and testimony and things of that nature.
1: One of the things I like about mediation during the divorce process is that you get a say in how things are. Instead of asking the judge to make decisions about your life, your kids, your property, you actually get to speak up and you get to be a part of that decision-making process, and that's a pretty powerful thing.
0: We have a question here from from, uh, one of our viewers who says, Why should I attend mediation instead of going to trial? That's a really good question, and, and think about it this way one no one has more information about your property your children your cash flow your tax considerations uh, your lifestyle than you and your spouse and so one wouldn't you rather be the one making the decisions using your superior knowledge because the poor judge is never gonna have as much information as you have no matter how good a job we do so one you have a superior knowledge and two the legislature has given the courts guidelines that they have to follow in terms of dividing the estate and and setting child support guidelines and visitation guidelines. As a couple, the two of you are not bound by all those guidelines. You can be creative as all get out to formulate a plan that fits the needs of your children, your cash flow, your tax considerations, and so you can get a much better decision if you mediate. Not to mention you save a fortune in terms of time, energy, attorney's fees, and anxiety of waiting for a trial to, to roll the dice.
1: Correct. Think about it this way, because our courts, they have limited time. We may get, your trial may be a half day, a day, in, in, but that in the amount of time, there's no way even the best lawyers could actually present every detail of your life so that the judge would make the exact perfect decision for your situation. However, at mediation, you've lived that life. Your, your spouse has lived that life, so y'all both know all the details so that you can make better decisions.
2: And I also like to control the agreements that I make. So, whether it's a good deal or a poor deal in a mediation, it's your deal. If your car was breaking down and you had to go to a car dealership and you had no choice, but to take whatever car was there, because it's the only thing you could do, you'd walk away being pretty angry because you, you didn't really have a choice in the matter. You had to take that car. When you go to trial, the judge is gonna hear the evidence and he's gonna give you the deal. And you may walk out of there being very unhappy, but to me, if you sign a deal, even if you later on think you could've had something better, it's your deal and you tend to get beyond that and you tend to be able to move on with your life a lot easier if you take part in that deal. And what Christine said is right. A lot of times, even if a judge gives you, the last three-day trial the judge gave me, and he gave me five hours to present a case, it was a 25-year marriage with complex property issues and looting and all kinds of fault on the parties, and that includes your cross-examination and objections and openings and closings. So you really only get a very small amount And you also are hoping during that time the judge is listening and following the evidence you present. So I'd rather sit there, even if it takes eight or ten hours of mediation, and be able to detail your case to an experienced mediator.
0: Nice thing about mediation is everything that happens at mediation is privileged. So you can sit down, you can talk it out. Nothing that happens at mediation, if it fails, gets used in court, and you don't have to air any of your dirty laundry or anything like that. Uh, and if you do settle, then it's irrevocable and it's a done deal and you know you've got it finished. One of our viewers wants to know if they have a common law marriage. We get that a lot. Uh, they say they signed an automobile insurance policy together as a couple a few years ago. Does that make them common law married?
1: It's a hint that they might be, but that doesn't necessarily make them uh, common-law married. There are three elements. The first element is that you do have to live together. The second element is that you have to hold out, and that's why I say it's a hint that you might be common-law married. And the other is that everyone around you, your friends, your family, your, your social circle, believes that you're married.
2: This issue addresses, uh, addresses the holding out. You have to hold out to the world that you're married, not just to your friendly, your friends and your family. So if, if I had a girlfriend and I wrote that she was my wife on an insurance policy, who's going to see that besides the insurance policy? So there's cases that would say that that's not holding out to the public. So no, I would say that wouldn't be enough to be common law married.
0: Common law marriage is also called informal marriage and it's been a hot topic of late Uh, The legislature has changed the laws regarding common law marriages for a lot of good reasons that you've perhaps seen in the mail, or in the news, rather. Um, So for example, you cannot be common law married or informally married if you're under 18 anymore. Not in Texas, okay? So we, the the test becomes, and it's a test you have a burden of proving uh, that you're common law married or informally married. Used to be, if you checked into the no-tell motel as Bill and Susan Smith, you was married even if that wasn't your name, okay? Today, it's a much more difficult process. And I, I agree with what Gene what was saying. The court's going to look and see what manner of holding out did you do uh, with regard to did you file your taxes together as a married couple? That's kind of a biggie. That's one of the first things we look at. If someone is kind of fudging, saying, okay, yeah, this is my spouse because it gets me a discount on my automobile policy, that may not be enough. It's it's a very fact-specific analysis the court has to do to determine these, these informal marriages. Um, the uh, thing about informal marriages is if it's an informal marriage, you may or may not need a divorce because there is a presumption... That if you've been separated for more than two years, there's a presumption there never was an informal marriage. But a lot of people are getting trapped these days because they tell their employer, we're we're informally married, it's a common law marriage, I want to put my spouse on my insurance benefits where I'm working. Well, the employers have, have figured this out, and so many, many times they require you to execute an affidavit that they then file with the county. Now, there's several ways to be common law married, all right? One is by living together and holding out and and all of those kinds of things. The other way is to file an affidavit with the county that says, we're common law married. If you file that affidavit, you really do have to go get a divorce.
2: Right, yes.
0: Okay? Um, Child support. It just is, all right? Um, Jean, how many people come in a day and ask you I don't want to pay any child support how can we make that happen
2: all the time yesterday <laughs> mm-hmm. how is
0: child support calculated
2: child support is based on Texas guidelines and basically you look at your your net resources all the money that you earn from your salary and if you're earning money on the side take all of your net resources then you subtract your federal taxes social security taxes and medicaid <coughs> taxes and from that portion what's left then there's a percentage that's on a chart that I don't have before me but if you have one child it would be 20% if you have two childs, it'd be 25% of your net available resources now you could subtract also mandatory union dues and the portion of medical insurance that you pay on behalf of that child if you have children outside this marriage well then do will take consideration of that and, and your support will be a little lower but the guidelines are the guidelines. There are some exceptional circumstances where you may get more. You really It takes a fight out. You're going to improve your income. You're going to supply two or three years of federal tax returns. You're going to supply your year to date salary amounts from your check stub, and it's going to be calculated.
1: I'd like to add, though, that um, it, your, overt- your overtime also counts. It, it's not just its counted when calculating your income. And um, I lost my thought. <laughs> It's been my
0: impression with the judges that uh, the guidelines are the guidelines, and while the courts have the discretion to deviate from those guidelines, it takes a whole mountain of evidence to get them to do so. Uh, the guidelines are there for a reason, because it costs money to raise kids. And and honestly, the, the child support uh, numbers that we have also... Uh, Result in in a lot less litigation, okay, but there's there's always someone who says well, you know I want to see the receipts for what she's doing because she's out buying a new car and not buying milk for the babies Well, we we trust the parent who's receiving the child support to use the money in a way that's beneficial for the children And you know, they may need reliable uh, transportation and and that sort of thing Um, The child support kind of falls in, in, there's a lot of folks who say, all right, uh, you know, we, we have joint custody. That means there shouldn't be any child support. I, I pay for the baby when I've got her, and she pays for the baby when she's got her. That's not the way it works, okay? Having joint custody doesn't mean it's, it's 50-50 visitation or access to the child. That joint custody means you're going to share in the rights and duties of raising the child. But the court is still going to require that everyone feed, clothes, shelter the child. And, friends, in every case, the child costs more than the child support that's being received. Uh, Mama's not riding around living large and driving around in limos uh, on the, the pittance of child support that she's sometimes getting.
1: That's true.
0: That's true. Let's see. Do I have to prove fault in Texas to get a divorce?
1: No, Texas is a no fault divorce or a no fault state, meaning that all you have to prove is that one of you, just one of you, doesn't want to be married anymore.
0: Sometimes you'll see that on, on TV about you know, New Jersey divorce. I've got to prove he wore white after Labor Day uh, to be able to, to win this case. There's nothing like that in Texas, and honestly, unless it's something terrible that means, you know, we have to protect the children in the presence of this other spouse, the courts don't care. It's really not relevant to their analysis. I like this one. Fred wants to know, what if I've got a bank account she doesn't know anything about? If we filed for divorce, do I have to give that up?
1: Well, you (laughs) have to definitely disclose it. And um, if it's If the money that's going into that bank account is coming from income or any other funds that are community property, which means anything acquired during the marriage, you're going to have to be willing to give up half of it because it's community property state and both of you own everything you acquire during your marriage.
2: You have to disclose all of your assets, all of your debts, regardless of the character of the assets or debts. And why that's important, I don't know if you all watch the news, but you'll see it from time to time where husband or wife wins a lottery doesn't tell the spouse says okay now I can get divorced goes gets divorced finds out later that uh, the husband or wife won a lottery they go to court and say it's uh, intentionally withheld information and it was a non-disclosed asset a lot of times those courts will just take that money and give it to the other person so if you want that to happen to your property then you can hide it but uh, if my clients do not disclose their property then I terminate the representation. It's called fraud on the estate. Let's talk about that
0: for a second because nobody understands community versus separate property. All right. Um, Gene, why don't you run down what community property is.
2: Community property is presumed to be everything from the day of marriage to the date of divorce, not date of separation. In the state, it's date of divorce that isn't considered separate property. Separate property is inherit uh, property acquired by gift, inheritance, or devise, or derived from separate property they purchased before the marriage or after divorce, and that includes wages. A lot
0: of people say, "Well, I'm the one made all this money, or that's my retirement account." No, not in Texas. In Texas. There's, there's your stuff and her stuff and y'all's stuff, and most of it's y'all's stuff. And part of that's because Texas is very stingy about alimony compared to some other states. Some states have big alimony statutes, and that's how they divide the estate in a divorce. In Texas, we divide what the parties have acquired together, and that includes their wages, all right? now if you have some kind of traceable mutation of some separate property you know uh, this this used to be uh, uh, Apple stock and 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 I had that before I got married uh, but I traded it in for some Amazon stock later well the Amazon stock would still be your separate property but there are really complex community property laws so if you own 20 cattle before you got married those 20 cattle are still separate property, but all the calves they had are community property. If you own stock in IBM before you get married, okay, then that stock is still yours, but all the dividends and interest that you received from earning that stock and reinvested back into it, that's community. And so you've ended up commingling all of this stuff. Now, What's the good way to avoid having to deal with the division of community and separate property?
1: Keep your separate property separate. Don't commingle.
0: Or?
2: Premarital agreement.
0: Before pre-marital. you get married, pre-marital. write a premarital agreement. And <clears throat> I, know, I know that I've had this in the last month. Uh, someone came in to see me. They wanted to get a divorce, and they thought, well, I'm okay. I'm covered. We did a premarital agreement before we got married. Uh, Where did you get this premarital agreement? Who drew it up? I found it on the Internet, and I I changed the words around a little bit, and uh, this must have been a 100-year-old prenuptial agreement that someone found and and just kind of cobbled together and said, this will work, and and it was not effective. Mm. So it's people wonder why attorneys are so expensive and whether or not they really need an attorney and and the fact of the matter is most of the time you do in a divorce situation where you're dividing property the the rules for dividing property are not terribly complex uh, some things uh, remain separate property you know we talked about the cattle if, if they have calves that turns into community property but if you have land and you cut down the timber that's still separate property they have all kinds of rules as to to how that that happens Uh, if you own the house before you get married then that house texas follows the inception of title doctrine that says whether it's community or separate property depends on when you got it okay if you got it before you got married it's your separate property and nothing's going to change that okay now the community might be entitled to some reimbursement do uh, you want to explain reimbursement a little bit?
1: <laughs> a little bit, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's quite complicated in fi- figuring out how it's all calculated. But what reimbursement means is if you have a separate property home and let's say that your spouse starts helping you pay the mortgage on it, then that spouse may have a reimbursement claim. It's not necessary. It's a complicated uh mathematical problem so it's not necessarily a dollar for dollar reimbursement but it is a reimbursement claim and it depends on whether or not your spouse was paying from their separate funds or from their community fund or from the community funds and so as you can see that could get pretty complicated and you need a lawyer to help you with figuring that out
2: that's one of the reasons why I do I do a lot of premarital agreements because everybody thinks of a premarital agreement and in, in like a draconian agreement saying well I'm gonna Enter into this agreement and no one's going to get anything. It's really not the purpose of the agreement, in my opinion. The purpose of the agreement is to define your separate property and things such as co-mingling, what if I put my wife on my deed of my separate property home, Uh, what if I have other stocks, what if I have business interests and contracts and things like that. So what, what I do is I disclose all the assets and debts and then I try to figure out Okay, it doesn't matter if it mutates, doesn't matter what bank account, doesn't matter what's used for, that remains separate. But going forward, we're gonna develop this little community nest egg and we're gonna use this account and our earnings that would be community, we're gonna put into that and anything that purchased from that account will be community, we'll divide it this way in the event of a, divor- a divorce. That way it keeps the forensic accountants from having to be hired and that to the cost of your attorneys to divide up your business, your home, your stocks, your bonds and things like that. So there, there's different ways to do it, and you can be as creative as the law requires or allows. Sorry. Yes.
0: Uh, here's a fella that, that says, My attorney is insisting that we prepare sworn inventories and appraisals to exchange with the other party. Why in the world would I want to do that?
2: Well, that to yeah. me, when they, whenever you're a lawyer, of course people get sued and they have insurance. You have to perform the minimum due diligence. In my opinion... Every attorney should always require their clients to do a sworn inventory and appraisement. All that does is that swears to the other party, this is all my property, whether it's 401ks, retirements, bank accounts, cars, houses, pets, furniture, furniture, jewelry, whatever, and all your debts. That way, if the, you have a settlement in and in a divorce, and there is something missing, like we talked about the lottery winnings, now you have a document. They swore under oath that this is all they have. So now you have them. So that way you can feel confident in entering into an agreement that this is everything that's out there that needs to be divided.
0: A lot of folks going through a divorce have a lot of people whispering in their ear. Well-intended people, you know, good friends, co-workers, et cetera, and they're all warning you know, they may be hiding something from you, you know. The sworn inventories and appraisals are a way for you to protect yourself from those kinds of issues. And and make sure that you're both talking about the same things because, honestly, most cases settle before trial for all the good reasons we talked about. And if you settle it, you want it to be settled. You don't want to find out that, oh, he hid this bank account over here and didn't tell me anything about it. So that's a good way to handle that for those kinds of issues. Um, child support and spousal support come. Sometimes they're interrelated. There's a question that says, "Okay, what if I'm on salary, I've got my own business, and I'm making about a hundred k a year, and she's getting salary for about fourteen thousand dollars a year? Would she be entitled to any spousal support or alimony?"
1: Well, uh, spousal support in Texas um, for after the divorce is only. Um, It's for limited situations. You've got to be married at least 10 years, Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, you've got to prove that one of you is not able to to put themselves back out on the market. They don't have marketable skills, or they have some reason that they're not going to be able to support themselves after the divorce. The whole point of our spousal maintenance in Texas is to help the spouse who is financially dependent on the other one to kind of get back on their feet. If they're both making, well, how much was the? He
0: said 100K a year.
1: Possibly. (laughs) About, oh,
0: it was about, what, 12 years ago when Texas adopted the alimony statute. Mm -hmm. And, oh, there were big headlines on the top of all the newspapers. Texas adopts an alimony statute. Uh, Every year we kind of get together, all the serious family law attorneys and judges, and kind of compare notes and see what the legislature's done this year to us to change the laws. And so when Texas adopted this alimony statute, we all got together and we looked to see how broadly applied it was. And the first year that we had an alimony statute in Texas, two people qualified. So when I said a minute ago we're kind of stingy about alimony in Texas, I'm not kidding. I mean you think about how many divorces we have in Texas. Uh, alimony is usually not a factor. Uh, and and you have to prove uh, a lot and you have a, a heavy burden of proof uh, to bring Meaningful alimony into existence. But alimony and temporary spousal support are two different things. Okay? Temporary spousal support, uh, you know, dad moves in with his secretary and moves out and, and leaves mom uh, and the kids uh, and, and runs off. And mom and the kids are trying to figure out how to keep the, the rent paid and the, the lights on and that sort of thing. And the courts will routinely award spousal support from dad to mom to maintain the status quo and make sure that the lights are on and they've got heat and and groceries in the refrigerator.
2: Right. Right. And just to go back to the numbers that were offered here about alimony, if you qualify and you're eligible, meaning that you have over 10 years of marriage, then you have to prove that the other side, the spouse, cannot meet her minimum reasonable needs. What does that mean? That's hard to say. I would say she's renting a place and she has food on the table and she's not behind on her bills, her cars, uh, her electricity and things like that. She's meeting her reasonable needs. But then you also have an affirmative duty to go out searching for a job. So you have to show the court that you're actively putting your resume out there, you're calling up, you're, you're trying to get employed to make more money or just to make any money. So there's a lot of things you have to jump through so it's pretty hard to go in and do that.
0: Christine, this lady's husband is the one who messed up all their credit and used up all the credit limit on their credit cards. Can she be held responsible for that debt?
1: Unfortunately, as we talked about in, uh, earlier about community property, you also have community debts and that means the debts acquired during your marriage are presumed to be the responsibility of both of you. Now if the credit card agreement is just under one name, your husband's name, then they're going to go after him, but it's still community debt and the judge could have you pay for some of it.
0: Gene, I find that a lot of judges have difficulty dealing with debts. Um, in, in part because they, they don't have jurisdiction over these creditors that, that we've all contracted with. Um, I would say, in my experience, in Tarrant County, <clears throat> the courts are, are prone to kind of let the debts fall where they are. What is the, the tendency in, in Dallas and Collin County?
2: I think that's about right. It depends. If one spouse really is making a lot more than the other spouse... And one spouse truly cannot pay the debts it's not who charged what because no judge wants to go through 10-year marriage and see who who bought this and who bought that because guys are allowed to go on their hunting trips women are allowed to go to their spas they're not going to get into that but if one party cannot take it what what I see happening is that the party takes the debt will just get more of an offset of property Mm -hmm. so you don't always have to do everything in kind where somebody gets 20000 in debt and the other person gets 20000 in debt. It could be $20,000 10, and then this person gets another 10000 maybe from the 401k or the proceeds of the sale of the house or something like that.
0: Sometimes people ask me, you know, he really messed up our credit score. Uh, what can we do about that? And the short answer is nothing, okay? Uh, the court has no control over the credit reporting companies. And frankly, your credit score is calculated using the entrails of a goat and a special incantation on a <laughs> night with a full moon, and only the credit reporting companies know how your credit score actually gets calculated. Uh, there's there's absolutely nothing that a court can do to help your credit score, and so uh, just know that if you marry someone, they can mess up your credit, or they can make it a whole lot better. You know, you pays your money, you takes your chances. Um, Here's a question about custody. Um, This person was recently divorced. Uh, They have joint custody, but the children live primarily with this parent. And that person has now recently received a job offer in California. Can they move to California and take that job and take the children with them?
1: Well, my favorite answer is it depends, um, but uh, a nobody lot, <laughs> likes that answer. <laughs> well, but it's so true. Um, if your paperwork has a geographic restriction in it, then you and it'll limit you. It limits you maybe to terrant and contiguous or whatever county you're in and the counties that are, that are around it, then you're not going to be able to just up and move to California. Um, usually those papers say that the child has to live in that area. So if you move, your child stays, meaning your child would probably go to the other parent or would, would go to the other parent. So um, and our geographic restrictions are strongly enforced in Texas.
0: And you're primarily practicing in Tarrant County. Correct. Would that be the same, Gene, in, in uh, Dallas and Collin County and, and I, areas... That part of the state?
2: Yes. It's very, very hard to transfer outside geographical restriction. If it's really a true cut case that is purely on a job, not because I have a level job here and I'd like to live in San Diego and it's the same thing, it's not really going to work. It's not going to fly. If it's a major step and it's maybe a very unique situation, then I have more success doing that. But it all depends on the best interest of the kids. Maybe in the other state, there's still extended family members. Uh, the person does in Texas doesn't really exercise his visitation as much as he says. There's different factors that you may look at, but just understand that custody, when you move away, you're taking kids away from somebody. It's going to be a big fight, and it's going to be very expensive.
0: I've interviewed a lot of judges about these relocation cases, and uniformly, judges hate relocation cases because no matter which way they decide, they're ruining someone's life. Uh, what the court has to look at is, is it really in the best interest of the kids to move? Uh, the court is not terribly concerned about whether or not this is the best outcome for mom or dad. Uh, they're trying to protect the children's right to frequent and continuing access to both parents. And. If someone moves to California, it makes it very difficult for the children to have that day to day interaction with the other parent and and uh, the court will work tirelessly to try to prevent that. sometimes separations are unavoidable uh, military deployments would be a good example and, and we have special statutes to address that, and one of the best things that that's come about is is We now have special statutes that address that uh, so that if someone is serving this country and and finds themselves on active duty temporarily somewhere, they don't simply lose access to their children. Another nice thing that that I've seen in my lifetime is the advent of technology so that we can Skype and FaceTime and and actually people get to spend more time with their their children. Um, Do you find that... uh, that the courts are very good at sorting out visitation or do you find that parents can do a better job themselves, Christine?
1: Um, I'm, t- I'm not sure I, I understand what you're asking. <clears throat>
0: well, uh, when people get divorced, frequently mm-hmm. they're, they're very mm-hmm. emotional, they're very angry right. with each other, right. or, or they're just angry every third day sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, the courts have guidelines that are set up for for visitation and it's a one size fits all type of thing right right
1: our texas legislature has gotten together and they have decided what would be a good visitation schedule for parents who who kind of get along but don't perfectly get along and that would be that um you're gonna the the, the parent who's not, the one parent will be named the primary. The other one is going to see their child on the first, fifth and uh, first third, and fifth weekend of every month um, from 6 p.m. on Friday to 6 p.m. on Sunday. There is a, such a thing as an expanded standard uh, schedule where it's from um, at the end of school on Friday to the beginning of school on Monday and also Thursday overnights. If you do the 6 p.m. to 6 p.m., then you get two hours on Thursdays. Um, and then we split up the holidays, and 30 days in the summer is what our legislatures say are in the best interest of the, of the children.
0: Gene, <laughs> a lot of people come to see us and ask about 50-50 custody. What do you tell those folks?
2: That's a great question. <laughs> That's a <laughs> tough one. Right now, right now, I tell them that most judges, it depends on first the age of the, ch- of the child or children, If they're under three or under five, that's a whole different ball game. But most judges are gonna say, it should be 50-50 and you tell us why not. And this has nothing to do with child support. It used to be if you had 50-50, you never had to pay child support and everybody wanted to get 50-50 so they wouldn't have to do that. But that's just look at it all by (coughs) itself. The problem is, is you still have reality involved. Sometimes you want 50-50 where it works okay they get to share equally with the kids maybe two days two days and a three days weekend and you flop the weekend the next time but the problem is where do these parties work when do they work how far do they live away from each other if I try to go from one side of Plano to the other side in rush hour it, it, it may take 45 minutes can I get there in time to pick up the child from school can I pick them up from daycare so a lot of people want 50-50 and what I try to do is, what in reality, will it work? Can you do it? And sometimes it's expanded standard when you really go through the, the calendar and you mark down all the, the days that you would have, plus the days maybe you know, someone is sick and the other parent has to watch the kids or someone has to work late or they have to go traveling. It's going to come out forty eight fifty two forty nine fifty one so you're really going to spend a lot of money to say that you have fifty fifty when in reality you have something close anyways.
0: The difference someone calculated it for me the difference between a true fifty50 50 and the expanded guideline which everyone's entitled to if it's workable is nine overnights in an entire year. Uh, and frankly, by the time you you have to switch weekends because Aunt Bessie never visits on the right weekend or the the wedding that your daughter's going to be a flower child in, or flower girl, flower child, um, is always on the wrong weekend. You end up switching things out and that sort of thing. Frequently, you get very close to a 50-50 anyway. One thing that that I, I always try and encourage folks to consider is the fact that parents divorce sometimes, but children do not. The two of you are going to co-parent and and be the parents and raise this child and have to work together for the rest of that child's life. Uh, Even after they're 18, you have marriages and grandbabies and graduations and and all of those things. And you don't want to be the couple who humiliates your children at social gatherings for the rest of their lives. So you do need to find some common ground to cooperate and work together so that your children can have something of a normal life. the fellow that that was worried about uh, he owned the company and he was getting a salary uh, and and would he have to pay alimony would also like to know that if the company's in his name does mama still get half of it Christine
1: well if it was it all goes back to the the inception of title rule um, when does when does the company created and, and the portion that of the company that acquires money income during the marriage would be community property right mm-hmm.
2: Depends. Depends <laughs> on what kind of entity it is. Right. Corporation. You could t- it, then you file articles of incorporation, and on that date, did it exist before the marriage or after the marriage?
1: Mm-hmm. If
2: it existed during the marriage, well, then you have to go through and you have to trace it. How was it capitalized? Who put in the money? Who put in things like that? So it can be very, very difficult. Uh, I'd need five hours to talk about all the different variances and and separating out community property and separate property. If it's sole proprietorship and there's no really business entity formed, then it could be community. But it, you have to look at the end result. If it's community and it's sole proprietorship, is it because you are maybe an auto mechanic? Well, then there, what's the value of that company? And there's a lot of things like goodwill, personal goodwill, and community goodwill, if you want me to explain the difference, that one's divisible, one isn't divisible, That it wouldn't really matter if the business is going to be community or separate in those kinds of situations.
0: A lot of times people will come in and say, but it's in my name. You yeah, know, that, that pickup truck's in my name. Well,
1: Well name it is? It doesn't matter whose name it's in. if it's it, it goes back to the inception of title rule. If you acquired the, the property during the marriage, it's community property, regardless who's on the mortgage, who's on the note, who's on the title. It's community property if it was acquired during marriage and it's not otherwise separate. So,
0: if you decide uh, i 'm buying a new car for mom but i 'm going to put it in my name ha ha because that way it 's mine it's it 's not going to work that way The, the court doesn 't really care whose name you 've listed it in on the tax document or anything like that
1: i 'd like to add that if you start if you 're planning for a divorce and you start um, got dark in here, if you plan for a divorce and you start putting things in other people's names so that it wouldn't have to be divided, it can actually, you still would have to disclose it and it can be discovered that you're doing that.
0: Here's a difficult question. Uh, I want to change my child's last name to match my new husband's name. Her biological father is behind on child support and doesn't visit very often. My husband has been more of a father than her biological father. How much will that cost to change her name and what do I need to do? Okay. Go ahead <laughs>
1: okay. That one's not just a name change kind of case. That one, you would actually have to terminate the rights of the biological father. Either maybe if he wants to, he could volunteer to, voluntarily do it or the court could do it without him consenting to it under certain circumstances. And then your, your husband would have to adopt your child.
0: Changing a child's names up big deal. It is. Okay? After all, we're only dealing with the child's identity, okay? And so the court has a lot of safeguards that are built into this, uh, including if the child is over 11, the child usually has to consent to it, Uh, and you have to find dad and serve him. I'm talking about the biological father. Mm -hmm. If you haven't seen him in a long time, you still have to find him and serve him so that he can give his opinion and have his day in court because it's a due process issue. Mm-hmm. So sometimes that makes makes life a little bit difficult. Uh, here's a question, and this, this kind of varies across jurisdictions. Uh, if Mama hires an attorney for this divorce, what are the chances I'm going to have to pay for her attorney?
1: Well, what I generally tell people uh, based on the courts that I'm in uh, is everybody asks, most attorneys ask for the other side to pay the attorney's fees as part of of your pleadings, because if you don't ask in court, you don't get. So, but usually what happens is if everything's pretty routine and you have very routine hearings, then both parties pay their own attorney's fees. Now, if you're being dragged into court weekly because the other side's complaining about something kind of silly or, or a type of hearing that really shouldn't have to happen, then your attorney has a right to ask for her to pay your attorney's fees or their attorney has the right to ask for you to pay their attorney's fees.
2: <clears throat>
0: how did how did the courts generally tend to treat the attorney's fees issues in in Dallas and Collin County?
2: Collin County it, it's really hard these days. You have to everybody has to plead for it. Like Christine said, if you don't ask, you you can't ask for it in court. You have to plead for it. But the courts are going Away from it even in cases where there's a lot there's some fraud that I've proved up and things of that nature I'm having a hard time getting attorney's fees awards but the only time that they really really more often get than not give it to you is if someone's withholding uh, the children from possession or you're going in to enforce a child support order from a decree then there are some statutes that give you some uh, some strength some power in court but in a normal divorce, no, I, I'd assume, always assume, that you're going to pay yours, and he or she's going to pay hers.
0: Um, got a question here It says, "I got divorced and thought everything was done, uh, but now that I'm trying to get my retirement, I'm being told that I need more documents to be able to get my share of the retirement account." That seems to happen a lot. Yes, it does. Uh, what you're looking for is a quadro, which stands for Qualified Domestic Relations Order, which would allow the trustee to give the money to someone other than an employee. But I find a lot of times people wonder, do I really need that quadro? Gosh, that costs extra. And can't I just do that myself?
2: No, I always advise you have to have an attorney do it who specializes in quadros or a family law specialist or somebody who's very experienced in family law because... It depends on what company somebody works for, who's the plan administrator. They require certain documents, and it's a lot of these companies, if it's big, you know, say American Airlines, they're dealing with employees from all over the country. And if you're awarded under Texas law a portion of that person's 401k or IRA or pension plan, well, then that plan administrator is used to seeing certain documents to help divide that. So you really need somebody who's experienced enough for that particular company that particular plan the pension plan or 401k or IRA and how to divide it so you need a separate document that's normally signed by the judge that goes along with your decree.
0: I think the smart way to handle this is when you're doing the divorce to go ahead and prepare the quadro and what we do is we'll prepare this proposed quadro or qualified domestic relations order and we will send it to the trustee of the retirement account and have them pre-approve it before we ever take it to court, because these documents can be very complex, and there are magic words that have to be used, and the magic words are different for every plan, Yes. okay, because they were written by different folks.
1: I just want to advise the lady that that asked about this, is you need to make sure your divorce decree actually gives you a portion of the retirement, because if your divorce decree doesn't give you a portion of the retirement, a quadro is not going to help, it's not going to... It it won't be signed by the judge because you weren't awarded any retirement.
0: I had a lady come in not too long ago who another attorney prepared her divorce years ago, 10, 15 years ago. And at the time, she didn't want to put together a quadro. She didn't want to have to deal with the retirement accounts at that time. She just didn't want to spend the money or didn't want to deal with it. And so she came back much later and said, let's get this done because I want my share of that retirement. And lo and behold, her ex-husband had already liquidated that account and it was gone. And there was no money to retrieve because it was not timely divided and over the intervening decade, he took the money. Mm-hmm. And there's no way to replace that money because he didn't have it anymore. Um, one of the saddest things we face a lot it's, it's getting a skosh better, grandparents' rights. Many, many times, grandparents are the most stabilizing force in children's lives, and yet, grandparents have very few rights in Texas. Gene, what do you tell grandparents who come in saying, mom is just a mess, and I'd be a much better mother, and, and the baby needs to come to live with me?
2: Very difficult, I would tell, tell them get an agreement from the baby's mom, the father, and do it that way, if it's possible. Uh, I worked on one of the biggest cases they had in Texas, and it was a great case, and every time it went up on appeal, it got overturned, and we'd come, it would send it back, and we'd win and send it back. The standard is so high, where you have to find both parents basically unfit, and just because you disagree with a parent Uh, raising of a kid doesn't mean that they're unfit. In most of these cases what I find I don't know about your caseload and your experience with it but they normally involve when one parent dies Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and it's normally just a normal emotional reaction where one parent dies, the grandparents maybe had some differences with the other parent or maybe during the death uh, something happened and their relationship went askew and then they say something bad So then the surviving parent just says, well, you know, they said something bad about me, I'm not gonna let them see the kids anymore. Mm -hmm. And they're allowed to do that. If they're fit, they're allowed to determine Mm -hmm. who gets to see their children. And so that's why the standards are so high, I would say try to reach agreements with them, be nice, make it, make them wanna give you their children more often than not. Say, look, you're very busy at work, you have a lot of things, you're dealing with a lot of stuff in your work, let us help you with your daycare, let us help you after school, let us help you remain in the children's lives, and that way you can do that and sort of see what's going on and keep your thumb on the process. But to get them out right is going to be very difficult.
0: These cases deal with what we're calling standing, okay? Unless you can prove what Gene's been talking about, that the, the biological parents are making terrible decisions, uh, that are really endangering the children's physical or emotional health and well-being, then you don't even have the right as a grandparent or a third party in many, many cases to even ask the court for right. assistance. Okay. So when someone comes in to see you, Christine, mm-hmm. we're dealing with a threshold issue that can they even ask, isn't that right?
1: Right, that is right. Um, what if? if you've had the child if if both parents have voluntarily let you have the child for more than 6 months and you're the one that's taken to, to school and getting their homework done and giving them baths and you're basically the parent and the other parents don't live with you then if that's been occurring for 6 months then you're going to be able to ask the court to 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 see if you can get custody but i mean short of that it's it's difficult
0: we only have a few minutes left but here's a question and and I know you're working on on this issue right now on a number of fronts this person says they're getting married soon could you talk a little bit about prenuptial agreements are they just for the ultra wealthy or are there reasons for average folks to go through this process and draft a prenuptial agreement
2: like I said earlier I I think it's for average folks as well Uh, you don't have to be extremely wealthy you just have to what it does is just gives you rights, gives you peace of mind of what what was yours previous to the marriage, how it's going to be treated upon divorce, and how acquired property and debt is going to be treated uh, going forward. Uh, I don't think you can also you know, provide for, for what happens in divorce. You can sub- uh, apply for uh, alimony. You can put in things that the courts don't wouldn't award you. You can contract for anything. I mean, Texas has a freedom to contract uh, intent behind all their laws, basically. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that
0: some, some people are afraid to talk about prenuptial agreements because it's unromantic, okay? And, and what I would say is this, every marriage is going to end eventually, even if it is by death. There is nothing unromantic about talking to your life partner and soulmate about how you're going to plan your future together. All right? We've talked about the difference between community and separate property and how complex it is and some, sometimes it just doesn't seem to make any sense. Some of this is old archaic law. He gets the chickens and she gets the mules and there's a certain number that goes this way and it can be very frustrating. A prenuptial agreement allows the parties to make the decisions and not be subject to the vagaries of whatever the old common law system says, okay? Uh, and and it allows you to be much more flexible without having to worry that somehow you are accidentally catching a tripwire that suddenly changes the character of your property and makes your life a whole lot more difficult. Right. Christine, mm-hmm. we offer free interviews at Bailey and Gallion, mm-hmm. and so someone can come in and talk to us. What do you What do you think the free consultation is for?
1: Um, for me to get an idea of what your situation is and let you know how I could help you and estimated cost. Um, but it's also if if you have a legal problem that. that that you really may not need an attorney, you just need some, a little bit of advice, I'd, I'd be happy to talk to you. Maybe you don't need to hire me at this time.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, because we do want you to have the information you need to make a, a smart decision. Mm-hmm. And honestly, most of these free consultations last about 30 minutes uh, if it's a, if a fairly simple case. Uh, and I find that for a lot of folks who come in, uh, I can tell them, you can fix this yourself. Uh, more effectively than the court has, if you'll just do X, Y, and Z, you'll be in in really good shape to to deal with those kinds of issues. Uh, Again, we have free consultations for folks. We have a 10% discount on our quoted retainers for active duty and veteran military service members, as well as for public school teachers. Um, We want to be your neighborhood attorney. Uh, That's why we have offices scattered all around the Metroplex to try and make it a little bit more convenient for you to uh, uh, to come in and get some information and not be terrified that you're going to have to spend an arm and a leg just to get to talk to a lawyer and and ask them a a few questions uh, about uh, an issue that you may be having Uh, lots of people, normal people, have normal questions and normal problems and the the law is, is a complex place, okay? Uh, Christine and Jean and I are in this line of work because we like helping people and we want to be able to do you some good Um, I hope that you have uh, uh, enjoyed uh, this opportunity and I would tell you that uh, you can call us if we didn't get to your questions you can call us you can send us an email you can send us a a, a note on the Facebook uh, or a text we'll be happy to try and answer your questions as best we can and and give you the the freedom to uh, uh, talk to us if we weren't able to reach all of your questions today. I hope you'll remember to like and follow our page, and we really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you.
2: Thank you.